Amen. Let me greet you this morning and welcome you. If you are visiting with us here at Redemption Hill today, we're glad that you've come here to worship with us. And for those who are watching at home online, we greet our friends and family who are there as well. I want to invite you all to open in your Bibles this morning, as we have almost every week for the last year, to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 23. We will read our text in its entirety, and then we will pray together. Exodus 23, and we'll be beginning in verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed." Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor. Of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries." When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take away sickness from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come asking for your help. We recognize that there's a great distance historically between us and this passage, and there's things in here that may tempt us to become disinterested or or may even confuse us, but I pray that you would increase our faith this morning, that we would trust that what you have for us in your word today is what we need. I pray, Father, that you'd give us a sensitivity to your Holy Spirit. Convict us of sin. Assure us of your faithfulness and your power, your grace. 
And I pray that you would increase our trust in who you are and all that you have promised to do. So Lord, speak now through your word, we pray in Christ's name, amen. As a pastor, uh, one of the things that I get to do is officiate weddings. I've done quite a number of weddings. And in our culture, traditionally, weddings have many different components. And a central piece of those weddings that, that we often participate in would be the vows and the commitments and the promises that a bride and a groom make to one another. In a wedding, two parties are coming to the table. And they're both obligating themselves to the other. This is an obligation. It's a duty. Yes, there's, there's great amounts of joy and excitement and enthusiasm, but there's promises being made at a wedding that are supposed to be faithfully kept until death. And while not exactly a marriage, the covenant that God made with the nation Israel is often described biblically in marital terms. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea They all use the terms of husband and bride to refer to this arrangement between God and his people. This relationship began with the call of Abraham back in the book of Genesis chapter 12. It came with a promise of making Abraham a great nation, giving him a specific land and blessing him. And now here, a few centuries later at Mount Sinai, this nation that God has formed is meeting with their God. And there's promises that are being made. There is a covenant that is being formed. We started looking at the Ten Commandments as the principles that would shape this new society, the principles that outlined what their obligations were to their God. And we've been, over the last few weeks, studying through what's called the Book of the Covenant, all these statutory laws that apply the principles of the Ten Commandments to the nation Israel. And as this Book of the Covenant comes to a conclusion here in chapter 23, we find not only what's expected from Israel in terms of her duties, her obligations to God, but we also find a reminder of what God has done and what God will do. So there's a mutual commitment that's being made here in this covenant. God has been and will be faithful to them, and they are called to be faithful in return to God. Or to put it more succinctly, the faithfulness of God calls for faithfulness to God. That's the point this morning, if you're a note taker, the faithfulness of God calls for faithfulness to God. Now, granted, this is an old text, and this is an old covenant. It's one that's no longer in force today. We relate to God not through the terms of this old covenant. As believers in Jesus Christ, we relate to God through the new covenant Terms that have been enacted by Jesus Christ, brought about through his life, his death, his resurrection. But we still can learn much about our relationship with our God as we study this relationship between him and Israel in the Old Testament. There's two aspects of covenant faithfulness I want us to look at today. And the first is this. Number one, the covenant depends on the faithfulness of God. It depends on the faithfulness of God. The fact that Israel even exists at this point in history is a testament to the incredible faithfulness of God. As we read the book of Genesis, which is really the prequel to this book, to Exodus, we learn that God called Abraham, promised to make him a great nation, and the first step to doing that was that God gave Abraham and his wife, in their old age, a child. It was a miracle. They're 100 years old and having babies This is something that is a testament to the faithfulness of God. If he promises to do something, he is able to do it, and he will do it. Not only did he give them a child, God blessed and preserved their family through a second and third generation, and then providentially led the descendants of Abraham down into Egypt. And he did that for a reason, so that they could escape this deadly famine that threatened to wipe out this new nation that God was building. There in Egypt, they grew into a multitude, a great nation. And although the Egyptians enslaved them and mistreated them, God miraculously delivered them. He brought them out with great signs and wonders. And then he provided for them in the wilderness. He sent down bread from heaven, gave them water out of the rock. 
And then he brought them to this mountain. He led them, guided them by a pillar of flame during, or a pillar of cloud during the day, a flame by night, his presence leading them. God had been faithful every step of the way. So the God who is now requiring obedience from them here in the law, the God who is giving them these statutes and these instructions, he's the one that they can thank for their life, their freedom, their very existence. Everything they have depends on God. The whole thing is built on his faithfulness. The covenant depends on the faithfulness of God. If God isn't faithful, there is no covenant. There is no salvation. There is no freedom. There are no blessings. There is no inheritance. And this faithfulness, as we see in verses 10 through 19, is first of all to be remembered. This faithfulness is to be remembered. That's what all of these instructions are about in verses 10 through 19. First of all, in verses 10 through 12, God gives them a reminder about the Sabbath law and sort of expands the application The fourth commandment had instructed them, if you remember the Ten Commandments, instructed them to set aside the seventh day for the purpose of rest and worship. And here in verses 10 through 12, this principle is expanded, not just to rest themselves on the seventh day of the week, but to even rest their fields every seventh year. And this isn't just about smart farming. It's not just about allowing the soil to be replenished, although there are Um, scientific benefits to doing this. But the reason was that so that they could reflect God's character. Remember, the Sabbath reflected God's acts in creation. He rested on the seventh day, so his people were supposed to remember that and do the same. But in letting their fields rest, and even in, in taking their personal rest on the seventh day, this is to reflect God's character. God had provided rest and relief for them. He had set them free from their bondage in Egypt. And so God's people were to remember that faithfulness and to reflect that kindness even in their rhythms of life. Resting on the Sabbath ensured that their farm animals and their servants would be allowed to rest. Resting their fields every seventh year was intended to bring about relief for the poor and even the wild animals, it tells us. It would have given them a chance to forage and find food. So as they rotated their fields every seven years, you know, they would have been farming other fields and giving certain fields rest and rotating everything through. There would have always been provision for those in need. And as a people who had experienced God's faithfulness, they were to remember that faithfulness and even extend it to others. So Sabbath worship was supposed to reflect a faithful God. But it's not just the Sabbath, it's also the festivals in verses 14 through 17 that are to help them remember the faithfulness of God. These festivals would rehearse God's faithfulness to them in times past. Verse 15 tells us about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, if you've been with us in our study through Exodus, you'll remember several chapters back, God had already given them these instructions, and it's connected to the Passover. When the Passover took place, the 10th plague, the angel of death came and and rendered the final judgment on Egypt that set them free from their bondage. They not only celebrated Passover, they sacrificed the lamb and painted their doorposts, but they took their bread with them before it had time to rise. They left in haste from Egypt. And so they're supposed to celebrate this feast of unleavened bread, no yeast in the bread, to to celebrate and remember that very night when God brought them out of Egypt. The second feast in verse 16 is the feast of harvest, Later, this will be called the Feast of Weeks because it takes place seven weeks after the Passover on the 50th day. In the New Testament, this is called Pentecost. So it's all sort of the same thing if you've heard of some of these different feasts. Seven weeks after the Passover, this would have been when the spring grain harvest was taking place. And they would have celebrated there God's provision for them. All the good things they enjoyed, although it was the result of their hard work, yes, Their feast was ultimately dependent on God because he gave them the land. He's the one who sent the rain. He's the one who made their crops grow. And Deuteronomy 16 tells us they're to celebrate this feast in order to help them remember that they had once been slaves in Egypt. They didn't always, they hadn't always been farmers. They used to make bricks. They hadn't always owned land. They used to be slaves. 
They hadn't always enjoyed the fruits of their labors. They used to work for someone else and never get to enjoy the benefits of their hard work. But now all of this is theirs to enjoy because of what God had done for them. So this is to help them remember God's faithfulness. And the third feast is no different. The feast of ingathering in verse 16 is is often called the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles. In the early fall, they would harvest the later crops. This would be grapes and olives and things like that. And they would later be instructed to build these booths, these temporary shelters, and dwell in them during this feast. You might say, what's the point of that? Well, future generations would then be reminded of how Israel didn't always live in houses. They used to be a nomadic people. They'd once been traveling through the wilderness, living in these temporary shelters. And God, in those days, when they could not farm, God had always provided for them. He had always met their needs. And so their enjoyment of the fall harvest was to be a celebration of where they had come from and what God had done for them. His faithfulness to provide for them and bless them throughout the years. Each one of these yearly festivals is intended to help them recognize and remember that God is faithful, that God had always been faithful to them. It's to be remembered. But not only is God's past faithfulness something that matters, it's to be remembered, but God's future faithfulness also matters greatly. That's what we find in verses 20 through 33. Not only is his past faithfulness to be remembered, But his faithfulness in the future, it's to be trusted. God's faithfulness is to be trusted. Verses 20 through 33 talk to us about the conquest. The people entering into the land of Canaan and taking it. If you remember back in the book of Genesis, in the very last chapter, the entire book ends with one word, Egypt. That Joseph died and was laid to rest and buried in Egypt. Strange way for a book that has so much to do with the promise of Canaan to end. And Exodus likewise starts off with a list of the sons of Israel, noting that they and their families numbered 70 in Egypt. There's supposed to be a tension for the reader as we read those words, Egypt and in Egypt. Because Genesis is filled with all these promises about the land of Canaan being given to Abraham's descendants. And this theme of the land being given to Israel is a major theme behind the event of the Exodus, but also behind the laws that we find in Exodus. The law was not just supposed to govern how they live in general. The law was given to govern how they lived in the land. That's important. The very language here in these statutes, the the very instructions about crops and feasts and all these different things, it anticipates a nation that's living not as slaves, that's living not as a nomadic people traveling from place to place, but a nation that lives as settled farmers, even dwelling in cities. But there's a problem, at least from where they stand at that moment at Sinai. That land that God had promised to them was not yet vacant. It was very much inhabited. It was occupied. But God had plans for that. Again, going back to Genesis in chapter 15, God spoke to Abraham as he was in the land of Canaan and said this, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, speaking of this future generation that would come out of their affliction, they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This indicates that there is going to be one day a conquest And God was going to bring Israel back into Canaan, and he was going to use Israel to render judgment on the wicked inhabitants of Canaan. Now, here in Exodus, God communicates to Israel how that is going to happen. Here's how that's going to take place. Here's how God is going to bring about that promise to fulfillment. In verses 20 through 22, he speaks of his personal presence. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. 
This is a promise of God's personal presence, that he would guard them, that he would guide them, and that he would finally give them the land. Who is this angel that God refers to? Well, this angel is none other than the second person of the triune God. Here in this passage, we see that this angel speaks for God. He speaks as God. He does things only God can do. He's to be obeyed. He has the power to pardon sin. He blesses them. He judges them. And most significantly, he bears this divine name. He says, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. The name here is very important. Again, God had revealed this name to Moses in the book of Exodus, back in chapter 3, on this very mountain. This was the place where Moses had encountered the burning bush, and God had informed him, revealed to him his name. I am who I am. That is who this God is. This name is not just some title. It's an expression of God's very person. It's an expression of his being, his essence. So when God says, I will send my angel before you, and then describes the angel this way, this is a way of God telling them, listen, I will be with you. I myself will make it happen. I myself will go before you. What a comfort for them to know that the divine presence the one that had rescued them from Egypt and led them through the Red Sea and provided for them in the wilderness, the very God who is now speaking to them from Mount Sinai, that this God would be with them. He would go with them in the future. He would continue to be faithful to them. This faithfulness is not only seen in the divine presence, but it's also promised in terms of God personally blessing them. In verses 25 through 26, he speaks about blessing their bread and their water, taking sickness away from them, blessing them with fertility and and children and offspring and long life, saying, I will fulfill the number of your days. This is a way of God saying, listen, no false gods will be needed. I know the Canaanites look to all of their gods for things like health and food and fertility and long life, but I myself will do all of that for you. God himself would be the key to everything that they needed. We see this faithfulness promised also in terms of military victory, verses 27 through 30. In verse 23, he said that he would blot them out. He would blot out, he would wipe out the hostile pagan nations that inhabited the land. How will he do that? Well, verse 27, it says he'll send a debilitating fear upon them. He will send his terror before them. It says in verse 27, he'll throw them into confusion. It says in verse 28, he will send hornets against them, that God would use all manner of natural phenomena to to accomplish his victory over their armies. And he even says he will use Israel. He will use them in battle to defeat them. Verse 31 says, you shall drive them out before you. What this tells Israel is that their military success and the fulfillment of God's promise to drive out the nations and give them the land, it would not be because of their cunning. Victory did not depend on their strength. It didn't depend on their numbers. Victory depended on the faithfulness of God. The one who had been faithful in the past would be faithful in the future to give them the land, to give them victory over their enemies. And this would result, according to verse 31, in the full fulfillment of his covenant to them. God would be faithful to give them the land. The land that was promised would be theirs. He gives them the four points of the compass here, referring to the borders of the land, north, south, east, and west, the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates, He said that he would give the inhabitants of the land into their hand and they would drive them out. The land is going to be theirs. What was promised to Abraham would be fulfilled. This is what God was going to do. God had been incredibly faithful, but he wasn't done. 
Yes, they should remember his faithfulness in the past, but they also needed to trust that he would be faithful in the future, faithful to do all of these things. The covenant depended ultimately not on what they did for God, but on what God had done and would do for them. Deuteronomy 7.9 says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The covenant depends from start to finish on the faithfulness of God. There's a second principle this morning that we need to consider that this text shows us, and it's this. Not only does the covenant depend on the faithfulness of God, but the covenant requires faithfulness to God. The covenant requires faithfulness to God. In light of all that God has done for them, in light of all that God had promised to do for them, how was Israel supposed to respond? Well, God had committed himself to them, but now they must commit themselves to him. The faithfulness of God calls for faithfulness to God. When the faithfulness of God is remembered, as we see in verses 10 through 19, it leads to worship. Their worship is to be a grateful worship, one that remembers and rehearses his great salvation. That's what those feasts are all about. It's supposed to be a worship that acknowledges his present provision for them. They could rest on the Sabbath, trusting God would meet their needs. This worship is to be personal worship. Notice that the Sabbath instructions are to be observed individually. Each individual Israelite was supposed to rest on the seventh day and to give rest to his animals and to his servants. That's something that individuals personally had a responsibility to obey. But this worship worship is also supposed to be corporate. According to verse 17, representatives from every household, every male, was supposed to come and worship in the same place, at the same time, three times every year. It's interesting here, just as a as an observation to note that Scripture doesn't pit personal worship against corporate worship, as if you can have one without the other. Some people today try to do that. Well, I worship God on my own. I don't need to go to church and worship, because I can worship Him every day. And then others say, well, I go to church every Sunday. Why is it so important that I open my Bible and seek the face of God on a daily basis? Because I already worshiped on Sunday. No, Scripture ties both of these together. We see it right here, personal worship and corporate worship. They are both essential. God desires both. Their worship is also to be distinct. It's a worship that is supposed to be shaped by God's word, not by superstition. A worship that is according to God's design, not adopting the pagan practices of their neighbors. That's why there's some of these instructions about not boiling a young kid in its mother's milk. That's a superstitious Canaanite practice that's supposed to somehow stimulate you know, fertility and blessing and bounty with their crops and their herds. God says, don't do that. Don't worship in the superstitious way that they do. Worship me in the way that I instruct. It's supposed to be a distinctive worship. They're not supposed to make covenants with them or their gods. They're not supposed to take the names of those gods on their lips. It's to be distinctive, and it's to be exclusive exclusive worship of God alone. And this is perhaps the strongest emphasis in this text. And it really here is fleshing out what we found in the Ten Commandments. Remember the first commandment. What is it? Do you remember? You shall have no other gods before me. Exclusive worship. They're not supposed to make any graven images. That's the second commandment. The third is that they're not supposed to take the name of their God in vain. The fourth is about Sabbath worship. The first four commandments all have to do with worshiping God. So it should be no surprise to us that this is emphasized in the law. And their worship is to be exclusive. Verse 13 tells us they're to use the name of their God alone. Do not take the name of their gods on your lips. Don't even acknowledge them. Don't give them the honor and the respect of, of, even ver, of even verbalizing their names. In those days, to take a name on your lips was to somehow to be connected with the power of that name. God says, don't even go there. Don't even go there. Verse 24 says they're not to bow down to their gods or serve them. Verse 32 and 33 says, don't make a covenant with them and their gods. 
They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Over and over again, exclusive worship. So God says, those other gods are not real gods. So don't take their name on your lips. Those other gods have done nothing for you. So don't worship them, worship me. Those other gods are not the ones you're supposed to be in covenant with. Don't make covenants with them. Keep your covenant with me, exclusive worship. So when the faithfulness of God is remembered, it leads to worship. But this text also shows us the second truth, that when the faithfulness of God is trusted, it leads to obedience. So their obligation in being faithful to God starts with worship, but it also includes obedience. And notice how this obedience is supposed to be a response, and not just a response to these laws as abstract ideas. Their obedience is a response to God as a personal being. This obedience is personal and relational. Look in verse 21. Pay careful attention to him, to the messenger, the angel that he sends before them, referring to the one who who is God, the second person of the Godhead. Pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. This is a personal response to their God. And there's a warning given. There's a warning given. It says, do not rebel against him, verse 21. Why? For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Now, you might read that and go, really? God will not forgive sin? That, that seems opposite of what we read so many other places in Scripture. We see God forgiving people often in the Bible, and it's even promised in many places. So what do we make of this statement? Well, I think we need to understand what is at stake here. In this context, in the context of a covenant that is being formalized between God and his people, to rebel against him, what's in view here would be nothing short of repudiating their very covenant with God, completely rejecting God. So to use the wedding or the marriage analogy we used earlier, this is not like a husband forgetting his anniversary. This is like a divorce. If you repudiate your God, if you rebel against him, if you turn away from him and renounce this covenant, then he will not pardon. To put this in New Testament terms, a parallel to this warning would not be the situation where you have a follower of Jesus who's doing his best but he fails to be perfect. This is rather parallel to the one who completely rejects Christ and renounces him. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, it says that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This is the command that must be obeyed. And if you rebel against this commandment, if you deny God at this point, refuse to repent and believe, then there will be no forgiveness. Those who reject the offer of salvation through Jesus in the new covenant, such rebels will be condemned and judged. So if you're the kind of person today who is genuinely and truly looking to Jesus, you have bowed your heart in submission to him you've repented of sin and you're entrusting yourself to his saving grace, then the Bible tells us that he will forgive your transgressions. Psalm 51 promises us that a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. Psalm 130 assures us that there is forgiveness with him that he may be feared. 1 John 1.9 promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you look Jesus in the eye today and you say no to him, if you rebel against his claims of being king of kings and lord of lords, if you decide to refuse his authoritative ownership of your soul and instead you choose to go your own way and write your own laws and be your own God, 
then he will not overlook your rebellion. He will not pardon it. He will not forgive. He will judge. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews reminds believers that we are no longer standing at Mount Sinai. We're no longer under this old covenant. There is a new and better and different covenant that we have through Christ. But the warning still remains. Hebrews 12, 25, the context in which he speaks of this old covenant and new covenant, the author of Hebrews writes, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? Listen, if you reject the God of the covenant, then you forfeit the blessings of the covenant. To put that in the language of the New Testament, if you reject Jesus Christ... You have no claim on the blessings of salvation that only come through Jesus Christ. To rebel against Jesus is to reject the only means of salvation, the only hope of eternal life. There is salvation found in no other name, Acts tells us. It's only through faith in Christ that we can receive the covenant blessings of salvation. And for these people, standing there at Mount Sinai, it was only through listening to this God, entering into covenant with this God, that they would experience the continued enjoyment of those covenant blessings. God's presence with them to protect them, provide for them, to drive out their enemies and give them the land. So what all did this obedience involve? Well, among other things, there's several we could point out, but I want to point out specifically God's instruction that they were to break down the idols that they found there in the land, referred to as pillars in verse 24. They're supposed to overthrow them and break them in pieces. They're supposed to smash stuff when they get there. That's what God wants them to do. They're supposed to refuse to make covenants with idol worshipers or to worship their idols, verse 32 and 33. You see, in addition to God's intended judgment on those nations, this act of obedience in the conquest was essential for them to preserve faithfulness in the covenant community. If they were to let these people and their gods stay around, it would have led to compromise. It would lead to mixing with them, adopting their gods and their ways, and this would be, according to verse 33, a snare. It would be dangerous to them. It would be bad for them. I think we can recognize, both in their day and our day, there's a progression that often happens. And here's the progression. You've probably seen it in your life. What is tolerated, what we accept, is eventually seen as valid. What you tolerate, it means you see it as valid. But it doesn't stop there. What is seen to be valid is eventually seen to be useful. You know, maybe there's a benefit to keeping some of these things around. And then what is found useful eventually becomes necessary. We won't give it up. We can't do without it. We see this in our personal lives. Money is seen to be a valid God, and then it becomes a useful God, which eventually means it becomes a necessary God. We see this happen in the church, that worldly values and ideas are first recognized as valid, and then they become useful, and eventually they're seen as necessary. At first, we add these things into our worship of God. We trust God and money. We fear God, and we fear what man thinks of us. We rest in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and we rest in the comfort of entertainment and the escape that it offers us. We identify with Christ and our political party. We seek God's glory and a little bit of glory for us. We honor biblical authority and worldly wisdom. We want to experience God's blessings and we want to pursue sinful pleasures. We start mixing these other gods in. But eventually, what always happens, if these things are tolerated, seen as valid, found to be useful, and then held on to as necessary, what happens is eventually it's no longer God and. We lose the God part. And all we're left with is idolatry. This is the path to apostasy. 
And that is why these people were commanded to make no partnership with the pagan nations, to make no covenants with them, to not even let the furniture that they left behind stay. They're supposed to destroy it all because it would be a snare for them. Listen, the true God tolerates no rivals. He tolerates no rivals. He will not be one of your gods. He won't settle for that. And it's not only because he's jealous for his glory. Listen, it's also because none of these rival gods, none of these other things can come even a thousand miles away from offering you any real eternal good. They don't even come close. None of the false gods we so easily go after can do anything to save us. In calling us to himself, when God calls us away from these false gods, he is calling us to the only hope of salvation, to the only source of satisfaction, the only way of living and worshiping that causes us to grow into what we were meant to be. Israel was to worship God, to obey God, to tear down the idols, to make no compromises. God had been and would continue to be faithful to them. But this covenant required that they, in return, be faithful to him. Faithful to worship. Faithful to obey. Responding to everything that he has called them to do. Now, as we've mentioned several times, this is the old covenant sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinaitic Covenant, the the agreement made here at Mount Sinai. And it was a temporary arrangement, an arrangement made specifically with Israel for that time and that place. So what does this have to do with us today? Well, very simply, number one, God is no less faithful today than he was then. The God whose faithfulness is seen as a thread woven from front to back throughout our passage today He's also still faithful today. He's the God who is the only reason we have breath in our lungs. The only reason we have freedom from sin. The only reason that we can enjoy the blessings of salvation is because of what God has done for us. God is no less faithful than he was then. And secondly, just like Israel, we too are called to be faithful to him. We worship him alone. We trust him alone. We obey him alone alone. The faithfulness of God calls for faithfulness to God. This is a call for the church to faithfully follow and obey and worship and trust our faithful God. But I want to clarify and make clear, I want to make very clear this morning, what place this faithfulness has in our salvation Listen, faithfully obeying God's law is not a way to earn salvation. Faithfulness to God does not somehow merit and and make us deserving of all of his blessings. This is not what makes us right with God. And listen, even in Exodus, this is the case. I mean, think about this. These people had been rescued from slavery. And God had instituted his covenant with them at Sinai, despite the fact that they had already failed him over and over and over again. They didn't trust God in the wilderness. They grumbled and complained because there was no food and no water. When he said, don't go out and get manna on the seventh day, people went out and got manna on the seventh day, or tried to. When he said, don't save any overnight for the next day, just trust me, they tried to save it overnight for the next day. These people had not been faithful. And yet God is offering all of this to them anyway. This was never about earning their salvation. The old covenant included necessary laws, yes, but even the old covenant is founded on grace from the beginning. The law that was laid out for Israel was a path for them to live as a redeemed nation, and it outlined for them how they could continue to enjoy God's blessings. Everything is being provided for them here. But we know the sad truth that these people didn't keep the covenant, did they? They didn't obey these laws. They didn't drive out the nations. They didn't destroy their gods. They failed. They worshiped idols. They forgot God's law. And because of it, they ended up forfeiting the blessings of the covenant. They were driven out of the land, taken in captivity into exile. They lost the blessings that had once been theirs. But friends, this is why Jesus came. 
The good news is that even though people like us can't keep covenants like that, Jesus came to fulfill the obligations of the covenant, to earn all of its blessings on our behalf. Jesus came to atone for the sin of lawbreakers, and Jesus came to institute a new covenant, a better covenant. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, countless other places in the prophets tell us about this new covenant that God was going to make with his people, one in which the law would be written not on stone tablets. It would be written on their heart. A new covenant in which God's very spirit would be given to his people to cleanse them of sin and to empower them to obey and persevere in their faith. A long time before, in the conquest, God sent his angel before them to drive out the nations. But in the New Testament, we find that God sends his messenger, the word, once again. The one in whom is his name. God sent his own son so that the covenant promises could be fulfilled. This time, he would put on human flesh and he would go before us. Not to defeat the Canaanites, he would go before us to defeat sin, to defeat death, to defeat Satan, our great enemy. When Jesus shed his blood, this new covenant was instituted. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Our relationship with God is now mediated through Christ. And the covenant that blessings that we now enjoy, it depends not on our ability to keep the law, it depends on the faithfulness of Christ. I'm going to say that again because I want this to be clear today. The blessings of salvation, the new covenant blessings we enjoy, it depends not on our ability to keep the law. It depends on the faithfulness of Christ. And what this means today, as we seek to be faithful, as we seek to respond in obedience to God's word, it means that faithfulness for us, the faithfulness that matters, it doesn't look like perfectly keeping the law, because we can't, even if we try. Faithfulness looks like clinging to Christ. That's what it means Faithfulness looks like depending on Christ, abiding in Christ, submitting to Christ, trusting in Christ, loving and following Christ. He is the source of our salvation. And so the God who has been faithful to us, faithful to save, faithful to send his son to redeem us, calls us simply to cling to him. Like Israel, we too are called to worship and trust and obey. But we do this not to earn God's blessings, but as our expression of love and gratitude for those blessings. Romans 12 tells us that in light of the mercies of God, the great salvation he's provided, we are to present our whole selves as a living sacrifice to him. In John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, then keep my commandments. We are called to be faithful, not to earn our salvation, but to worship and express love for our faithful God who has saved us. So the principle for us today is the same as the principle for Israel, that the faithfulness of God calls for faithfulness to God. We started this morning by talking about weddings, vows that are made by two parties, where each party promises to be faithful. Listen, God is perfectly faithful. He's been faithful to Israel in ages past. He's been so faithful to us today. He's never failed and he never will. I hope that that encourages you today, that as you remember God's faithfulness, that it fills you with confidence and gratitude and joy. Now, in light of God's faithfulness to us, his faithfulness past, present, and future, today would be a good time for us, so to speak, to renew our vows, wouldn't it? To renew our commitment to worship him and trust him and obey him. The faithfulness of God calls for faithfulness to God. So let's look to Christ today. Let's remember his work. Let's depend on his spirit. Let's live for his glory as those who have been brought into a covenant relationship with him through the saving work of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I confess that faithfulness is not something that I can do perfectly. 
It's not something that we can do perfectly. And as much as we want to, as much as we may desire to live in a way that always pleases you, it's inevitable that we will at times fall short. We wrestle with indwelling sin. We are beset with weakness. There's times where our faith wavers and we stumble. Lord, we are thankful that we can know this morning that our salvation, eternal life itself, depends on your faithfulness, not ours. We thank you for sending Jesus to fulfill the law, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for the shedding of his blood that cleanses us from sin. We thank you for the gift of the spirit that has been poured out upon us, empowering us, cleansing us. Lord, as those who have received so much mercy, as those who have been recipients of your faithfulness and your grace, I pray that you would move us today, that you would move our hearts, that we would be filled with resolve to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, to worship you faithfully, obey you faithfully, not trying to earn your blessings, but expressing our gratitude for your undeserved grace. And Father, for any among us today who perhaps have not yet surrendered to Christ, I pray that they would not rebel against him. I pray that they would hear the warning, the warning that those who refuse him who speaks from heaven will not escape judgment. I pray that, Lord, today they would recognize their own inability to be good enough, to to keep the law on their own, to do enough good things to somehow make up for their sins and earn salvation. I pray that they would look away from themselves and look to Christ in faith. I pray that they would turn from their sin and repent and be reconciled to you. We pray that you would save sinners today, Lord, through the preaching of your word, the work of your spirit. And I pray that you would encourage and that you would fill with resolve those of us who know you and have been recipients of your faithfulness. We worship you and praise you and glorify your name. Amen.